Section four of A Voice from Harper's Ferry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Voice from Harper's Ferry by Osborne Perry Anderson. Chapters thirteen through sixteen. Chapter Thirteen: The Capture of Captain John Brown at the Engine House. One great difference between savages and civilized nations is the improved mode of warfare adopted by the latter. Flags of truce are always entitled to consideration, and an attacking party would make a wide departure from military usage were they not to give opportunity for the besieged to capitulate or to surrender at discretion. Looking at the Harper's Ferry combat in the light of civilized usage, even where one side might be regarded as insurrectionary, the brutal treatment of Captain Brown and his men in the charge by the Marines on the engine house is deserving of severest condemnation, and is one of those bloodthirsty occurrences dark enough in depravity to disgrace a century. Captain Hazlitt and myself, being in the arsenal opposite, saw the charge upon the engine-house with the latter, which resulted in opening the doors to the marines, and finally in Brown's capture. The old hero and his men were hacked and wounded with indecent rage, and at last brought out of the house and laid prostrate upon the ground, mangled and bleeding as they were. A formal surrender was required of Captain Brown, which he refused, knowing how little favor he would receive, if unarmed, at the hands of that infuriated mob. All of our party who went from the farm, save the Captain, Shields Green, Edwin Coppick, and Watson Brown, who had received a mortal wound some time before, the men at the farm and Hazlitt and I were either dead or captured before this time. The particulars of whose fate we learn still later in the day, as I shall presently show. Of the four prisoners taken at the engine house, Shields Green, the most inexorable of all our party, a very Turco in his hatred against the stealers of men, was under Captain Hazlitt, and consequently of our little band at the arsenal. But when we were ordered by Captain Brown to return to our positions, after having driven the troops into the bridge, he mistook the order and went to the engine-house instead of with his own party. Had he remained with us, he might have eluded the vigilant Virginians. As it was, he was doomed, as is well known, and became a free-will offering for freedom with his comrade John Copeland. Wiser and better men, no doubt, there were, but a braver man never lived than Shields Green." Chapter 14, Setting Forth Reasons Why O.P. Anderson and A. Hazlitt Escaped from the Arsenal Instead of Remaining, When They Had Nothing to Do, Took a Prisoner and What Resulted to Them, and to This Narrative Therefrom, A Pursuit When Somebody Got Killed and Other Bodies Wounded. Of the six men assigned a position in the arsenal by Captain Brown, four were either slain or captured, and Hazlitt and myself, the only ones remaining, never left our position until we saw, with feelings of intense sadness, that we could be of no further avail to our commander, he being a prisoner in the hands of the Virginians. 
We therefore, upon consultation, concluded it was better to retreat while it was possible, as our work for the day was clearly finished, and gain a position where in the future we could work with better success than to recklessly invite capture and brutality at the hands of our enemies. The charge of deserting our brave old leader and of fleeing from danger has been circulated to our detriment, but I have the consolation of knowing that, reckless as were the half-civilized hordes against whom we contended the entire day, and much as they might wish to disparage his men, they would never have thus charged us. They know better. John Brown's men at Harper's Ferry were and are a unit in their devotion to John Brown and the cause he espoused. To have deserted him would have been to belie every manly characteristic for which Albert Hazlitt, at least, was known by the party to be distinguished, at the same time that it would have endangered the future safety of such deserter or deserters. John Brown gave orders. Those orders must be obeyed, so long as Captain Brown was in a position to enforce them, once unable to command, from death being a prisoner or otherwise, the command devolved upon John Henry Kagi. Before Captain Brown was made prisoner, Captain Kagi had ceased to live, though had he been living, all communication between our post and him had been long cut off. We could not aid Captain Brown by remaining. We might, by joining the men at the farm, devise plans for his succor, or our experience might become available on some future occasion." The charge of running away from danger could only find form in the mind of someone unwilling to encounter the difficulties of a Harper's Ferry campaign, as no one acquainted with the out-of-door and indoor encounters of that day will charge anyone with wishing to escape danger merely. It is well enough for men out of danger and who could not be induced to run the risk of a scratching, to talk flippantly about cowardice and to sit in judgment upon the men who went with John Brown, and who did not fall into the hands of the Virginians, but to have been there, fought there, and to understand what did transpire there are quite different. As Captain Brown had all the prisoners with him, the whole force of the enemy was concentrated there for a time after the capture of the rifle factory. Having captured our commander, we knew that it was but little two of us could do against so many, and that our turn to be taken must come. So Hazlitt and I went out at the back part of the building, climbed up the wall, and went upon the railway. Behind us, in the arsenal, were thousands of dollars we knew full well, but that wealth had no charms for us, and we hastened to communicate with the men sent to the Kennedy farm. We traveled up the Shenandoah along the railroad, and overtook one of the citizens. He was armed, and had been in the fight in the afternoon. We took him prisoner, in order to facilitate our escape. He submitted without resistance and quietly gave up his gun. From him we learned substantially of the final struggle at the rifle factory where the noble Kagi commanded. The number of citizens killed was, according to his opinion, much larger than either Hazlitt or I had supposed, although we knew there were a great many killed and wounded together. He said there must be at least seventy killed besides wounded, Hazlitt had said there must be fifty, taking into account the defense of the three strong positions. I do not know positively, but would not put the figure below thirty killed, seeing many fall as I did, and knowing the dead-aim principle upon which we defended ourselves. One of the Southern published accounts, it will be remembered, said twenty citizens were killed, 
Another said fifteen. At last it got narrowed down to five, which was simply absurd after so long an engagement. We had forty rounds apiece when we went to the ferry, and when Hazlitt and I left we had not more than twenty rounds between us. The rest of the party were as free with their ammunition as we were, if not more so. We had further evidence that the number of dead was larger than published from the many that we saw lying dead around. When we had gone as far as the foot of the mountains, our prisoner begged us not to take his life, but to let him go at liberty. He said we might keep his gun, he would not inform on us. Feeling compassion for him and trusting to his honor, we suffered him to go. When he went directly into town and finding everything there in the hands of our enemies, he informed on us and we were pursued. After he had left us, we crawled or climbed up among the rocks in the mountains, some hundred yards or more from the spot where we left him, and hid ourselves as we feared treachery on second thought. A few minutes before dark, the troops came in search of us. They came to the foot of the mountains, marched and countermarched, but never attempted to search the mountains. We supposed from their movements that they feared a host of armed enemies in concealment. Their air was so defiant and their errand so distasteful to us that we concluded to apply a little ammunition to their case, and having a few cartridges on hand, we poured from our excellent position in the rocky wilds some well-directed shots. It was not so dark, but that we could see one bite the dust now and then when others would run to aid them instantly, particularly the wounded. Some lay where they fell undisturbed, which satisfied us that they were dead. The troops returned our fire, but it was random shooting, as we were concealed from their sight by the rocks and bushes. Interchanging of shots continued for some minutes, with much spirit, when it became quite dark, and they went down into the town. After their return to the ferry, we could hear the drum beating for a long time, an indication of their triumph, we supposed. Hazlitt and I remained in our position three hours before we dared venture down. Chapter 15. The Encounter at the Rifle Factory As stated in a previous chapter, the command of the rifle factory was given to Captain Kagi. Under him were John Copeland, Sherard Lewis Leary, and three colored men from the neighborhood. At an early hour, Kagi saw from his position the danger in remaining with our small company until assistance could come to the inhabitants. Hence his suggestion to Captain Brown through Jeremiah Anderson to leave. His position being more isolated than the others was the first to invite an organized attack with success, the Virginians first investing the factory with their hordes before the final success at the engine house. From the prisoner taken by us who had participated in the assault upon Kagi's position, we received the sad details of the slaughter of our brave companions. Seven different times during the day they were fired upon while they occupied the interior part of the building the insurgents defending themselves with great courage, killing and wounding with fatal precision. At last, overwhelming numbers, as many as five hundred, our informant told us, blocked up the front of the building, battered the doors down, and forced their way into the interior. The insurgents were then forced to retreat the back way, fighting, however, all the time. They were pursued when they took to the river, and it being so shallow, they waded out to a rock midway and there made a stand, being completely hemmed in front and rear. Some four or five hundred shots, said our prisoner, were fired at them before they were conquered, 
they would not surrender into the hands of the enemy but kept on fighting until every one was killed except john copeland seeing he could do no more and that all his associates were murdered he suffered himself to be captured the party at the rifle factory fought desperately till the last from their perch on the rock slave and free black and white carried out the special injunction of the brave old captain to make sure work of it the unfortunate targets for so many bullets from the enemy some of them received two or three balls there fell poor kagi the friend and adviser of captain brown in his most trying positions and the cleverest man in the party and there also fell sherard lewis leary generous-hearted and companionable as he was and in that and other difficult positions brave to desperation there fought john copeland who met his fate like a man but they were all honorable men noble noble fellows who fought and died for the most holy principles john copeland was taken to the guard-house where the other prisoners afterwards were and thence to charlestown jail his subsequent mockery of a trial sentence and execution with his companion shields green on the sixteenth of december are they not part of the dark deeds of this era which will assign their perpetrators to infamy and cause after generations to blush at the remembrance chapter sixteen our escape from virginia hazlitt breaks down from fatigue and hunger narrow escape in pennsylvania i have said elsewhere that hazlitt and i crossed over to the maryland side after the skirmish with the troops about nightfall to be more circumstantial when we descended from the rocks we passed through the back part of the ferry on the hill down to the railroad proceeding as far as the sawmill on the virginia side where we came upon an old boat tied up to the shore which we cast off and crossed the potomac the maryland shore once gained we passed along the tow-path of the canal for some distance when we came to an arch which led through under the canal and thence to the kennedy farm hoping to find something to eat and to meet the men who had been stationed on that side when we reached the farmhouse all our expectations were disappointed the old house had been ransacked and deserted the provisions taken away with everything of value to the insurgents thinking that we should fare better at the schoolhouse we bent our steps in that direction the night was dark and rainy and after tramping for an hour and a half at least we came up to the schoolhouse this was about two o'clock in the morning the schoolhouse was packed with things moved there by the party the previous day but we searched in vain after lighting a match for food our great necessity or for our young companions in the struggle thinking it unsafe to remain in the schoolhouse from fear of oversleeping ourselves we climbed up the mountain in the rear of it to lie down till daylight it was after sunrise some time when we awoke in the morning the first sound we heard was shooting at the ferry hazlitt thought it must be owen brown and his men trying to force their way into the town as they had been informed that a number of us had been taken prisoners and we started down along the ridge to join them when we got in sight of the ferry we saw the troops firing across the river to the maryland side with considerable spirit looking closely we saw to our surprise that they were firing upon a few of the colored men who had been armed the day before by our men at the kennedy farm and stationed down at the schoolhouse by c p tidd 
they were in the bushes on the edge of the mountains dodging about occasionally exposing themselves to the enemy the troops crossed the bridge in pursuit of them but they retreated in different directions being further in the mountains and more secure we could see without personal harm befalling us one of the colored men came towards where we were when we hailed him and inquired the particulars he said that one of his comrades had been shot and was lying on the side of the mountains that they thought the men who had armed them the day before must be in the ferry that opinion we told him was not correct we asked him to join with us in hunting up the rest of the party but he declined and went his way while we were in this part of the mountains some of the troops went to the schoolhouse and took possession of it on our return along up the ridge from our position screened by the bushes we could see them as they invested it our last hope of shelter or of meeting our companions now being destroyed we concluded to make our escape north we started at once and wended our way along until dark without being fortunate enough to overtake our friends or to get anything to eat as may be supposed from such incessant activity and not having tasted a morsel for forty-eight hours our appetites were exceedingly keen so hungry were we that we sought out a cornfield under cover of the night gathered some of the ears which by the way were pretty well hardened carried them into the mountains our fortunate resource and having matches struck fire and roasted and feasted during our perilous and fatiguing journey to pennsylvania and for some time after crossing the line our only food was corn roasted in the ear often difficult to get without risk and seldom eaten but at long intervals as a result of this poor diet and the hard journey we became nearly famished and very much reduced in bodily strength poor hazlitt could not bear the privations as i could he was less inured to physical exertion and was of rather slight form though inclined to be tall with his feet blistered and sore he held out as long as he could but at last gave out completely broken down ten miles below chambersburg he declared it was impossible for him to go further and begged me to go on as we should be more in danger if seen together in the vicinity of the towns he said after resting that night he would throw away his rifle and go to chambersburg in the stage next morning where we agreed to meet again the poor young man's face was wet with tears when we parted i was loath to leave him as we both knew that danger was more imminent than when in the mountains around harper's ferry at the latter place the ignorant slave-holding aristocracy were unacquainted with the topography of their own grand hills in pennsylvania the cupidity of the pro-slavery classes would induce them to seize a stranger on suspicion or to go hunting for our party so tempting to them is the bribe offered by the slave power their debasement in that respect was another reason why we felt the importance of travelling at night as much as possible after leaving young hazlitt i travelled on as fast as my disabled condition would admit of and got into chambersburg about two hours after midnight i went cautiously as i thought to the house of an acquaintance who arose and let me in before knocking however i hid my rifle a little distance from the house my appearance caused my friend to become greatly agitated having been suspected of complicity in the outbreak although he was in ignorance of it until it happened he was afraid that should my whereabouts become known to the united states marshal he would get into serious difficulty 
From him I learned that the marshal was looking for Cook, and that it was not only unsafe for me to remain an hour, but that any one they chose to suspect would be arrested. I represented to him my famished condition, and told him I would leave as soon as I should be able to eat a morsel. After having dispatched my hasty meal, and while I was busy filling my pockets with bread and meat in the back part of the house, the United States Marshal knocked at the front door. I stepped out at the back door to be ready for flight, and while standing there I heard the officer say to my friend, You are suspected of harboring persons who were engaged in the Harper's Ferry outbreak. A warrant was then produced, and they said they must search the house. These federal hounds were watching the house, and supposing that whoever had entered was lying down, they expected to pounce upon their prey easily. Hearing what I did, I started quietly away to the place where I left my arms, gathered them up, and concluded to travel as far as I could before daylight. When morning came, I went off the road some distance to where there was a straw stack where I remained throughout the day. At night I set out and reached York, where a good Samaritan gave me oil, wine, and raiment. From York I wended my way to the Pennsylvania Railroad. I took the train at night at a convenient station and went to Philadelphia, where great kindness was extended to me. And from there I came to Canada, without mishap or incident of importance. To avoid detection when making my escape, I was obliged to change my apparel three times, and my journey over the railway was at first in the night-time, I lying in concealment in the daytime. End of section 4